Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And I am also a host, Dax. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Just like we practice. Yes, very good. I have I have said this I have said the word that I was supposed to say. <laughs> Each episode, we tell a story about video game history so that you can learn a little bit more about the games that you love. But before we do all of that, hey man. How you doing? It's been like eight months. <laughs> eight months? Are you for real? Oh, uh, hold on. Okay, wait. We put out an episode in August, right? And it is now May, right? So what is that? How many months Shit. is that? <laughs> I, I can't count, but it, it's probably eight months. Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. <laughs> um, um, that's a lot of time. It is. But we are, um, um, as I can inform the listeners, we are actually in schedule. Because there is a schedule for the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's just not published. So yeah, uh, and I just checked it, and this is actually when we were supposed to record another time. So yep. middle of May, everything is fine. Yep, we didn't even take a break. It's just in schedule. Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this was all planned. So um, I know some of you out there uh, have been uh, really pestering me for episodes, um, and Docs, I've been waiting to tell you this. Did you know that while we were away? They made a secret subreddit for Codex Rex where they post for Codex Rex. There is a Codex Rex subreddit (laughs) that they post memes every month until we start uh we start up again. (laughs) I will send it to you. Oh yeah. So are are the memes any good or is it like the quality that our community usually produces (laughs) that I am mostly greatly part of? It's a little bit of both. Um, I sent you the link right now. I've been waiting to unleash this. Eins B eins. Eins B eins. I think you guys okay. broke him. <laughs> You've absolutely broken him. <laughs> so for the rest of you um so we have a subreddit now it's just reddit.com slash r slash codex rex it's not even managed by me and i find that to be hilarious because they've been posting on it for months <laughs> did did crypt shadow like post a fake question he did. <laughs> i'm pretty sure he oh. did yeah <laughs> so okay that's anyway cool. that's how long we've been away um but guess what we're back and uh hopefully it will be worth it um (laughs) so uh let's do what we do usually at the beginning of every episode and just talk about what we've been playing since it's been so long i had to sit and think about stuff that i have played between now and the last episode and my game recommendations are if you like old school jrpgs check out chained echoes it was recommended to me by a buddy um you probably know him in the discord as Rousset. i i thought it was great i think the ending was a little hmm, maybe needed an editor but overall mechanics were awesome really enjoyed it and um, you also played um disco elysium didn't you yes yes i did man like i know everybody uses the word masterpiece for that game and it seems like a lot but it truly is it is so unique yeah just like phenomenal like i just can't i've never played something that i was like that scratched that very specific itch um also an rpg of sorts yeah and really impressive world building i just really like it it's just really cool Right. And there's just like so like you'll read something and like it'll be about some like 
very specific thing and you're like well that doesn't matter and then it does right it's like some weird piece of lore that's like affecting everything um yeah i, re- I really like that game and i guess we both have been really into darkest dungeon 2 lately that just came out for steam like a few days ago and mm-hmm. so they they kind of released the like they went out of beta right and now it's officially released right and i've basically only been playing darkest dungeons 2 till then and i wasn't sure if it's gonna if it was gonna be good but it's great yeah um i knew that it had hooked me when uh i caught myself humming the battle theme while i was walking around at work and i was like Mm -hmm. "Uh oh this has wormed its way into my brain but yeah so um Anything else you think that we should talk to them about? I don't know. I really, I played a lot of games, but I have, I seriously have no recollection. <laughs> and I'm, I must tell you people that if you ever become a parent, it will, you will lose yourself. Like it, it, everything disappears into a haze and you just, you just, sometimes you notice yourself sitting down and being able to breathe. And sometimes you can use these breathing occasions to also play a video game. And I I know that these situations happen but I, I can't i can't remember them and now I'm, all of a sudden i'm sitting here and breathing and i'm talking to my friend tyler but i don't know how i got here like just just like an hour ago i was tending my offspring but now it's gone and i'm here and i don't know what's happening so i would really like to talk about my video game experience but i can't i have i have no clue hey you know what did happen between the last time we recorded and now we met in real life. Oh, right. We had like yeah. the total we, bro down showdown. We, I totally forgot. Yeah, I went on my honeymoon <laughs> before I started my new job and I got to hang out with Docs for several days. It was That's great. Right. We met in life. We briefly discussed if we were going to record in real life. And then we said, why waste our time on this podcast if we can just hang out and have fun? So we didn't. Oh, yeah, it's sorry. But I'm also not sorry. I don't care. Oh, I'm not sorry in the slightest. No. So anyway, now our our <laughs> friendship is. is actually real because we have met yes. in real life, and I'm not saying internet we have friends shook are hands. real. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But anyway. Okay. Well. Well, tell me. Let's 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 stop blabbering and just yeah. tell me tell me the podcast. The I same, will. Right? So, uh, just a few quick housekeeping things. Just little housekeeping things. Oh yes. If you want to reach out to us um codexrexpodcast at gmail.com i will also yet again put out a call if you guys want quicker episodes more frequent episodes if anyone out there wants to help me do a little bit of research that's usually the biggest thing that takes me time on these um but or if you have episode ideas or if you have comments or you want to send me nasty messages codexrexpodcast at gmail.com we also have a twitter that i basically don't use because elon musk is terrible uh, you can also find me on Twitch and Vegan Tyler. And also, uh, just to define what good good research is, like two or three good interviews with developers or publishers is usually enough to build an episode around. So just if you find something like that, you can send it to us and we just mash it into into a script and we'll, we'll do an episode. Yeah, or like things that are also really useful for me are like if you want to know about a specific game or a specific company or something like that, like just creating like a basic timeline of events yeah. that I can like, like just the skeleton of an episode, I can fill in all of the important organs that the episode needs to function. But like sometimes that's just the hardest part. But okay, well, that's enough blabbering from us. Uh, you guys have waited a long time. Let's jump into it. Let's jump into this episode.
What is it? Where, where do well, we start? As always, because I'm so verbose, I have to start with a, a bit of a disclaimer about what this episode is going to be. I know, you're rolling your eyes. Yep, it's me. You know me at this point. <clears throat> this is an episode that I've been sitting on for a while. It's something I've always wanted to do an episode about. But every time I started thinking about it, I got really overwhelmed. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like just the thought of figuring out how to do an episode on this. And I would just like throw it to I'm the having like deja vu. Is this... Do you have this written down and say this in front of every episode that you do? Yeah, okay. everyone. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just to make it clear. Yeah. No, no, it's true. So in November of last year, um, I started doing some poking around on this subject, and I put together an outline, and I found that what I thought, in true Tyler form, what I thought was going to be a simple thing was actually this very lengthy, complicated web of like people and companies and consoles and like decades of work. And so I had to follow every rabbit hole. I had to. And this took me like six months, yeah. right? I've been working on this off and on. I mean, like I had to get Andrea to translate shit from Japanese for me. Like I have given up and started this episode so many times that it just like blurs together. Mm -hmm. Um, so what has come from this is like one of the longest scripts I've, I've written. We will not get through this in a single episode. Um, is it good? Well, that's for you to decide, but at the very least you will have more information about this topic than you probably ever even wanted. It doesn't have to be good. People, people listen to us because they like me. Yeah. It's you. So I, it doesn't really matter what we talk about. Yeah. So yeah, you are the funnier of the two of us. So Your script is good. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just like it. I'm not funny. I'm just. I'll tell you. And good looking. And people don't even see me in this podcast. They just they just know I look good. Right? He does look good. I'll tell you. I've seen him. He does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do this shit. Let's do let's it. Do okay, let's start. Let's do it. All right. We begin our tale with a boy named Satoshi Tajiri. Mm -hmm. Satoshi Tajiri was born in Tokyo in 1965 and grew up in Machida. Also, just disclaimer, there's going to be a lot of Japanese names and places in this. And um, much to my wife's chagrin, I am going to mispronounce about 40% of them. So just be aware of that. 40% is a good rate. Yeah, you know, I try. So we grew up in Machida. Yeah. If you don't know much about that area, um, it's a suburb in the western part of Tokyo. And in the 60s, it was kind of rural. His father was a Nissan salesman, and his mother was a stay-at-home mother. And as a child... He was very interested in bugs, particularly beetles. Mm. A quote. They fascinated me. For one thing, they kind of moved funny. They were odd. Every time I found a new insect, it was mysterious to me. And the more I searched for insects, the more I found. If I put my hand in the river, I would get a crayfish. If there was a stick over a hole, it would create an air bubble and I'd find insects there. I usually took them home. And as I gathered more and more, I'd learn about them. Like how some would feed on one another. So I stopped bringing them home. <laughs> but I liked coming up with new ideas, like how to catch beetles. In Japan, a lot of kids like to go out and catch beetles by putting honey on a piece of tree bark. My idea was to put a stone under a tree because they slept during the day and like sleeping under stones. So in the morning, I'd go out and pick up the stone and find them. Tiny discoveries like that made me excited. So dude's really into bugs, like really into bugs. This will matter later. He talked in several interviews about just how rural it was when he was growing up. 
um, and just the variety of animals that he would encounter. Quote, there were so many mysterious critters around, I didn't even know what to call half of them. And I guess that this love of bugs impressed his friends so much. He was so into bugs that other kids at the time started calling him Dr. Bug. I mean, I can kind of pitch in here because not not that I know much about bugs, but I know that actually being well-versed in bugs is really difficult because they're, with many insects, there's a high, vari a high variety and they differ in very small details. But I think once you get into it, it's really fascinating because you notice that they are everywhere. And at any given moment, there's an insect like within one meter of you. And I think once you realize that, especially as a child, it becomes very fascinating to to discover this hidden world. And I can imagine that this would be fascinating to other children too. Yeah, I totally agree, right? So Dr. Bug... I guess, was so into bugs that he had this journal. He'd like keep a journal of all the bugs that he had captured and he would show it to people, uh, like all of his like his findings about bugs he'd found in the world. As you might expect, uh, for a time as a child, he wanted to be an entomologist, which makes sense. Yeah. But as he grew older, the area that he lived in began to change. Japan was slowly modernizing and the places that he remembered began to become paved over. And in their place, shopping centers and highways appeared. I guess that one day he went to go out to his usual spot in the woods and there was a metal fence around it with construction signs. No more bug hunting nope. for Tajiri. Here's a quote about that development. Quote, the place where I grew up was still rural back then. There were rice paddies, rivers, forests. It was full of nature. Then development started taking place. And as it grew, all the insects were driven away. I was really interested in collecting insects. Every year they would cut down trees and the population of insects would decrease. The change was so dramatic. A fishing pond would become an arcade center. End quote. Now that part of the end, I actually think was literal, if other interviews are to believe, that the pond he used to play in literally became an arcade, like that spot. So he talks about as he grew up, he began to be surrounded by manga and anime. And he was particularly absorbed with Ultraman. Do you know Ultraman? You've probably seen it before. It rings a bell. I think I know how he looks like. I, I'm, is he like, I'm, I will say something very offensive to fans of it. Like, like he looks like a coked up Power Ranger or something like that. <laughs> like he's, he's a bit more pointy and he's on his own. And he's kind of, does he have this, like, he's a bit like, silvery yes yeah and red right <laughs> yes exactly yeah that's ultraman mm -hmm. okay yeah. good, good job i i quizzed you and you passed a minus but you pass <laughs> <laughs> a minus is good that's good i'm, 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 I'm fine with a minus. i'm a fucking easy grade man crates crates are easy in america that's nice <laughs> <laughs> so he gets really into into coked up power ranger ultraman and <laughs> looking back in his interviews uh, he said that if video games hadn't really become a thing, he thinks he would have ended up making anime. Um, we will come back to Ultraman later and why that show matters to our story. But I just want to note that he really liked Ultraman. Okay, Satoshi we'll likes Ultraman. He likes Ultraman. This no, won't matter. There are so many little things that you'll see that we'll all pay off later. So, okay, mm -hmm. back to the arcades. The early age of video games had begun, and Satoshi was enamored with the 1978 game Space Invaders. 
He was 13 years old, and he spent tons of time playing it in arcades. He says, quote, so I stopped catching bugs. Instead, I started playing games like Space Invaders and Galaxy Wars. That was the point in my life when my interests instantly turned to video games, end quote. I had a personal uh, thing for that. My father was obsessed with Space Invaders. Oh, yeah? And when he, he did his degree in mathematics, my mother told me that when he did his, his degree in mathematics, that he would endlessly play Space Invaders all night instead of working. And uh, that makes my father kind of relatable to me. So I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Something about the human experience where if we have fun things to do, we'll throw ourselves into them instead we, of... Absolutely. Instead of getting our degree. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it took me eight and a half years to get a get a PhD, so uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, it's a really fun game, I think. Yeah. Also. I also think it's nice to like give you that link there, you know? Yeah. To remember that the people in our lives are human and they sometimes play Space Invaders all night. Uh, I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, around the time, playing around a Space Invaders cost 100 yen. With the conversion at the time, okay, if you're looking like at that year based on like what it is now, um, it would be about a dollar and fifty cents per play to get around in. Compare mm -hmm. that into the U.S., where playing around a Space Invaders would have cost you about a quarter. Okay, so because of this, Tajiri had to find ways to play. He would ride his bike to the arcade to save money over taking the train. So if he had money to take the train, he would instead ride his bike and then he'd spend the money like for the train fare on Space Invaders. That's really smart. And then he would walk around in the arcade and they were very dark and he would look for change that people had dropped and then he'd grab it off the floor. And so apparently he would stand by the change machines, wait for people to drop their yen coins and then scramble over and pick them up like some kind of little arcade goblin. Oh, that's a little bit worrying, but I I wouldn't get into this too much. Like he was a kid, right? It's okay. Mm. <laughs> that's a bit weird, maybe. <laughs> oh, so it's coin kid again. Let's throw some coins to the ground. Some the say the rumors of Doctor Bug lives here. <laughs> he comes and steals your change off the ground, and then tells you about rhinoceros beetles. Like like if you if you drop a coin to the ground you'd skitter uh, <laughs> skitter forth from underneath an arcade machine and you'd just you'd, you'd just be a shadow passing by and the coins would disappear. <laughs> exactly like that, yeah. <laughs> so as you might imagine, his parents were not particularly thrilled with this new direction in his life. <laughs> he said that back then, if you were a young kid playing video games, you were seen as strange or delinquent. Quote, it was as bad as being a shoplifter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it still is. I mean, so. look at him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, but to their credit, I'm going to give them a little bit of credit here, right? Like, I know it's really easy to be like, oh, these parents will never just understand. But to their credit, Satoshi became so enamored with video games that he wasn't just playing them after school. He started skipping classes to go to the arcade. Quote, of course, when it came time to study for high school exams... I started going to cram school, but since I liked video games more than I liked studying, I went to a cram school that was next to the arcade. Whenever I had a 15-minute break from school, I would run over to the arcade to play some missile command and then hurry back, end quote. <laughs> so dude was in deep. 
totally not an addiction problem. Absolutely no, not. No. Not at all. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Like <laughs> de designing designing your entire setup of your life <laughs> around being able to satisfy your video game addiction. He he was he was completely okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Probably all is well. Healthy, yeah, nothing is wrong here. Man, that is stable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I couldn't get a timeline on this, but I guess he was hanging around and playing arcade games so much that the owner of the arcade that he hung out at gave him a Space Invaders cabinet that was being decommissioned. And he has said in interviews that he used to have like dreams about making his own sequel to Space Invaders. And then that slowly turned into his dreams of making games. But like he was so well known around these arcades that people just started like giving him motherboards and cabinets and stuff oh cool also as a side note i read in an interview that he said around this time that sega was having some kind of contest to send them video game ideas and like i couldn't find much on what this was but i guess that he submitted an idea to this contest at sega and won and sega paid him two hundred thousand yen now if my calculations are right after inflation and conversion, that would be around $2,000 or 1,800 euros today, which is a really nice prize for like a teenager. That is a lot of money. And if and they probably made a whole lot of more money from his idea. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so they totally screwed him over. But that's, that's what these contests are for, right? It's to, yep. to screw you over. Yeah. There's our cynicism again. So just to I'm be so clear. <laughs> no, I'm the same way. No, um, it's super nice. 2,000 yeah, euros. You can probably, yeah. like, I don't know, pay his insurance or something. <laughs> no, it's cynicism. I got, I'm, I'm totally infected. Not <laughs> yeah, and how much money did Sega make off of it? We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> Millions, probably. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> I've heard, so we'll, we'll progress this story a little bit. Now, I've heard some <laughs> mildly conflicting accounts of when this next part happens, but sometime when he's around 16 or 17 is when this occurs. Um, it's around 1981. Satoshi decides, Satoshi Chijiri here decides that he is going to make a magazine. Now, at the time, there wasn't really a good magazine that he could find that had information about video games. And there was obviously, right, this is like pre-internet, so you couldn't just go find things. And so he realizes that there isn't really any good, good like video game media and that there were just like rumors flying around about everything. Okay. Because no one knew, right? It wasn't written down anywhere. So it's just like you went on rumors on how to do things. You know, like, think of the time before the internet, because you and I are both old enough to remember this, when people would talk about video games and, like, what secrets they thought were in them, right? Even if that wasn't true. Yeah. And so it was like that in arcades. People would pass around this knowledge. And everybody would talk about what was cool and what wasn't and their own ideas on things. And so he starts, like, he decides he wants to make a magazine. He wants to write this all down. So he starts going around all the arcades that he already knew that he had been a you know, frequent patron of. And he starts talking to the owners of these places about their ideas on video games, um, what they think, and for tips on these games that he might put into the magazines. He hand wrote these magazines. He hand drew the pictures in them. Like I had a picture of like the very first, um, the very first cover and it has like dig dug on it. And he like drew it with like on like graph paper, right? Like the pixels, mm -hmm. yeah, right? Yeah. Like think about how like someone would 
uh, back then. So he would photocopy these pages and he'd staple them together. And he called his magazine Game Freak. Oh, yeah, okay. First off, I know that name. Second, that is so much work. Like, and, mm -hmm. and this is so much work that only a child would put in the commitment to do it. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's weird to make a project out of love that you make no money on and put a ton of time and effort into it. You know, it's like strange yeah, in the is... modern capitalistic era. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying. <laughs> I'm making fun of us. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I get the joke, Tyler. We're being cynic. It's okay. But I'm, I, I want to say something positive here. I'm saying like children have a lot of time and they spend it doing fascinating and great things. And that is really cool. And we do not do that as much. We do this podcast, but it, we can spend all of our time on it. it. A child often can and it will. And that creates these cool things that you don't expect, like a game called magazine, a, a game magazine called Game Freak, which I think you will Really keep that name? We'll see. I've been, I mean, I, when you started with the bugs, I was already thinking of something. Yeah. And I, I think we're moving closer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it will take us a really long time to get there. So, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so, okay. So he has this magazine, Game Freak, and he partners with a store in Shinjuku that sold fan magazines. And the magazines were listed at around 200 yen each. He said that people were more interested in the information inside of his magazine, um, and they didn't actually really care about how it looked stylistically. And it had all kinds of stuff. So information on how to beat games, little Easter eggs, you know, tutorials on how to draw characters, I assume, on graph paper, um, you know, things like that. Like lists, like he would make these lists of games that he heard were good um, you know, like if you didn't have that information, that would be really cool, right? So he, ba he basically did like do-it-yourself video game journalism. Yep. Which sounds cool. And so, you know, I've looked at some images of these from the early days, and for being hand-drawn and handwritten, I actually think he deserves some credit. They were like pretty stylish for, for what a teenager could produce solo. I mean, it's a far cry from what I could have done at that age. And I guess if you would do it that intensively, you'd get a hell of a lot of practice. So you'd probably just get right. better really fast. Right. So he has this first issue out, and he actually starts making some money from it. And then he takes the money he makes from the magazines, and he goes back to the arcades <laughs> with that money so that he can do more research. Oh, no. Oh. Mom, I have to play these games for my research, Mom. My name's Dr. Bug, okay? You have to call me Dr. Bug now. <laughs> it's my research, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I'm, 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 I mean, <laughs> I it's what he loves, him. right? That's why, that's, that's why he made a magazine about it, right? So he's gonna, of course he's gonna spend it on more video Of games. course, right? He's still addicted. That's good. Like, oh. This is a video game podcast, so it's yeah. fine. He should do yeah, it. Yeah, he should. Otherwise, why are we talking about him? He should play more video games. <laughs> Okay, now, this magazine ends up being an interesting little thing that makes him, uh, gives him the ability to start meeting people. So the story goes cool. that another teenager named Ken Sugimori, he was in a do doshinji shop in Tokyo one day, and he stumbles across a copy of Game Freak. 
Now, Sugimori could draw pretty well, and he had been drawing pretty frequently throughout his life. And he said that when he was a kid, this is like all he did. And he would draw pictures of like superheroes that he had invented himself, right? Like, always drawing, always creating things. So he has these designs of being like a manga artist. And he decides that he would reach out to the editor of Game Freak and see if they needed an illustrator. So one teenager sees another teenager's magazine and contacts him. They meet up and are like, oh my gosh, we're both teenagers. Did we just become best friends? (laughs) They totally hit it off. (laughs) So the two of them decide to form a partnership. Tajiri would do the writing and editing, and Sugimori would do all of the illustrations. Ooh, nice. More on that in a moment. One day, Satoshi Tajiri's father picks up a phone call. A teacher was calling to tell them that Satoshi would not be graduating high school and that he did not have enough credits to finish. Uh, actions meet consequences. His And that's when he died. Right? Yep. That's, that was the that end was of it. His <laughs> parents, they had had it. They said, um, for shame, uh, this is it. And uh, they... They murdered him. They did. Yep. Nice. Cool story, bro. Yeah. So when I said this was a... When I, <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Poor guy, Satoshi. I'm so sorry for him. Should I start it off with a disclaimer of... During the course of this podcast, someone will die. <laughs> anyway. No, for real. Is someone going to die? Um, Presumably. We all will someday. But, you know, not yet. Okay. Fine. <laughs> your face but but it's not like my episode where someone actually got murdered no his parents don't murder him um so his parents were upset though um he (laughs) and so he took the required number of makeup courses to graduate but at that point college was kind of off the table so his father trying to be benevolent starts making some calls and he makes a call to the tokyo power company hoping that his friend there could get satoshi a job as a lineman well satoshi flat out refuses the offer and i should really note how big of a deal this is like here's this kid in this culture that absolutely values conformity totally bucking the trend and is like fuck college i'm gonna make a magazine about video games and it's like the 80s okay so totally like how dare you do this But he did take makeup classes so that he'd graduate. Okay. Okay. Game Freak magazine starts gaining a bit of a following. The photocopied prints of the handwritten issues would sell out each week. Like, sell out. Off the shelves. And from what I can tell, I'm not 100% sure of this, but this appears to be the first video game magazine that was ever published in Japan. So, again, you know, Tajiri's doing all the organizing, the writing. Sugimori's doing all the illustrations. It's working out just as they planned. Now, in 1983, a game comes out in the arcades called Xevious. X-E-V-I-O-U-S. I I think I'm saying that right. Xevious. First, can we step back back a moment? I think think this is really interesting because Mm -hmm. we talked about uh, Peter Molyneux, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked about the guys that made Lemmings. Mm Mm-hmm. And they kind of all like they kind of all found each other, their personal circles of people that they developed things with, because there was a pretty big um, video game magazine or at least like computer uh, PC community in in England pretty early. 
and that this didn't exist at all in Japan is really fascinating. Yeah, because the technology was was so prevalent already. So I, 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 there must have been grown-ups that were already conversing about it in some way or another, but maybe there wasn't. I don't yeah. Know. So I, you know, in other episodes, and I can't speak for like the entirety of the culture of Japan, right? But like yes, in course. other episodes, there were like yeah. there were discussions of like, oh, like the you know. Nintendo's consoles won't sell well because they're considered to be toys. They're considered to be for children, right? This is like a child's toy. And so, yeah. you know, again, this is conjecture here, but I could see that there being less of a culture around these kind of things when when they're viewed in that light, when it's less acceptable to play them. Yeah, that makes sense. But good, good parallel there, though, uh, that magazines sort of were a way that people could connect pre-internet. Um, okay, so 1983, a game comes out, Xevious. It is published by Namco. It was a space shooter that gained a big following, selling out in three days when it eventually came to the NES. So it was like an arcade game, and they ported it to the NES. It sold out. Yep, yep, yep. It is one of the games that we can think of as establishing the scrolling, like, shoot 'em up style of game, like where you know, like a ship, and it's like it's like an auto scroller, and you're like shooting things that style. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Now, Tajiri played this game immediately because he's playing games in these huge arcades. He's got access to all the new releases. He decides to put together a Xevious guide for the next issue of Game Freak. And when the issue dropped, it was full of tips and information on the game. And due to the game's popularity, issues start flying off the shelves. Yeah. Now, the exact turn of events here was a little foggy for me, but Namco caught wind that a different kid was never named in anything i read had racked up 10 million points in a game of Xevious. i have no context but i assume that's a lot this kid gets an offer from namco would he the best player that they've ever found like to create the official strategy guide for Xevious? if so they would provide him with all the artwork and sprites in the game the kid reaches out to tajiri he had seen Game Freak and wanted to know, would Tajiri collaborate with him? This kid was very busy as a student, which I suppose Tajiri should have been too, and was <laughs> hoping that they should work together, right? So Tajiri agrees. The two of them together put together the official strategy guide for Xevious, and they publish it through Game Freak. They sell 10,000 copies of that issue at 300 yen each. Whoa. Okay. Depending on the conversion rate, and this does fluctuate, that's like thirty thousand U.S. dollars off of one issue. He's eighteen years old. You know what that can't buy? His dad being proud of him. (laughs) 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 Oof. (laughs) Poor guy. I bet. I bet he was so proud of himself, but. I, I hope his parents were kind of able to see that the thing that he might have achieved was pretty great. <laughs> you don't even have a good quip for that. I don't have a good comeback. That was just a deep cut. <laughs> Poor Dr. Bug. <laughs> so. Okay, so <laughs> this magazine really grows from this okay like it takes off he starts he realizes he can't photocopy them anymore it's just too much so he starts sending issues to a professional printer 
The business becomes a mail order service. I guess Tajiri would ask his little sister to help him stuff all the envelopes to send out to customers because it was like too much for one person to do. Yeah. Okay. Sugimori, Ken Sugimori, rents an apartment near Tajiri, and that becomes the new headquarters of the magazine. He also uses this space to work out of, and he's trying to pitch his art to to manga companies um, in the hopes that his career might take off. Okay. Enter. Sunekazu Ishihara. I'll probably just call him Ishihara for most of this episode. He was in his 20s, I think 24 at this time, if I'm right. And Ishihara had a master's degree in art and design. In the early 80s, he was working with computer graphics, and he was affiliated with a film production company. Apparently, this company was using an old house in Roppongi, which is another Tokyo district. And they're using this old house as a studio, and they're filming TV shows there. And Ishihara was really interested in making a late-night show about video games. He Ooh. said at the time he wasn't himself interested in video games, but he was interested in how the graphics were made. So he stumbles across, you guessed it, a copy of Game Freak. He starts looking through it. Here's all this knowledge about video games that gave him context on video games that he did not have. So, like, he might know Xevious, really popular, sold a lot, everybody wants to play it at home, but he had no idea of how it was made, how to play it, what the company did, any of that. But here's this magazine, all that information's there, and it's written by a teenager. So, I don't know the exact details here, but apparently, Ishihara and Tajiri meet, okay? Like, through this show, I guess, like, Tajiri went over there a few times, like, they hung out. They remain in contact. Ishihara will show up more in this story. Yep. Ishihara, quote, I was surprised someone had such a huge collection and so much knowledge existed. He even had circuit boards that were meant for commercial use, and he was making his own cables that could harness circuit boards. His passion was unmatched. Tajiri, I was happy too, though. Back in those days, there weren't many adults willing to listen to me talk about video games. Can I be honest here? Yeah, all of this would make really cool anime. I, I I just see it. I already see it. Like um, Satoshi, it starts out with him as a kid, mm-hmm. and then he grows into this really gritty, weird high schooler. Uh, <laughs> that people they find him like in the cupboard, or they always find him in the arcade room. But he's really famous, and he always hangs out with these big famous people. And he's like the main guy of the story. Like like every anime has these stupid male kid mm-hmm. that just. This really is, is kind of dumb, but everybody like and really it's weird. <laughs> yeah, and weird, and everybody around him, like everybody, realizes that they are weird and 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 stuff like that. But they can't escape his <laughs> success. It's just impossible. And he's going to be, and then the kind of he's gonna he's gonna be the video game king or something. That's what he wants to be. I will yeah, tell see. you that at one point they did make part of the story into a manga they did i don't think they've ever made it into an anime but part of this is actually an actual manga more about specific events later but Pretty cool yes yeah that's interesting though yeah like an endearing kind of weird yeah. like like you're weird but like you know i i got what you're vibing man like, yeah yeah okay there's something inside of me that can relate yeah yeah we're all dr bug in our own yeah. way so the magazine grows. Okay. So like he meets Ishihara. I will mention Ishihara later. Just wanted to say this is when they meet. Yep. 
the magazine grows. Soon they start having contributors. And all these contributors start hanging out and they start talking about video games. And as they would talk, they would discuss what they did and didn't like about them. Some of the games on the market were just plain bad. And they thought, man, these games could be so much better. And then that always turns to, hey, what if we made video games that were better? <laughs> so they hang on to this idea. And after high school, Tajiri decides that he's going to do a two-year degree at the Tokyo National College of Technology. He majors in electronics and computer science. He purchases a PC-8000 and starts learning how to code very, very simple games. It's so funny. He, he refuses to go to school, but as soon, <laughs> as soon as it will let him play more video games, he, he will study fucking computer science, man. <laughs> <laughs> Which involves right? like, like <laughs> really difficult mathematics. This, is, this isn't easy. This is not an easy field to study in. <laughs> like you you could see the pattern right like oh i'll make this really cool magazine and then as soon as i get the money that will let me feed my video game addiction yeah right it's like, it's like an, how it's like an heroin addict studying chemistry just to get more to get more of this stuff <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you a relevant story my wife andrea when she moved to japan for six months i said to her there is no way she said i'm gonna eat sushi every day and i said there's no way that you can eat sushi every single day you'll get sick of it <laughs> And she said, watch me. And then she ate sushi every single day for six months. And when she came back, she realized that sushi is actually really expensive in the United States. And so... And not nearly as good, probably. To feed her sushi... No, not most places. To feed her addiction, she taught herself how to make sushi. <laughs> and so now sometimes I'll say, hey, do you, do you feel like having sushi? And like, she doesn't even confirm. She just starts making it, right? <laughs> like all I have to do is she's constantly standing at the precipice of sushi. Everything is prepared already. She just turns around and it's already done. <laughs> right? A knife appears. <laughs> right? Like, so it gives me kind of that vibe, but. Okay, yeah. so he's in college, he has a PC-8000, he's learning how to make games. He also picks up a Nintendo Famicom around this time. He Michael. rips it apart. He just rips it to pieces and teaches himself how it works. He spends two years teaching himself how to code in BASIC, which is the coding language of the NES. So then, because they're, he's in college now, he recruits some programmers from a programming club to work with them. Those guys started hanging out with him because they bragged that they could reverse engineer Famicom games. And this is how they get the idea that they should create a game for the Famicom. I already feel like they pulled a Peter Molyneux on him, right? They just did the, yeah, I can, I can reverse engineer video games. Just give me, just give me the chance to do it. I can do it. I, 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 I reverse engineered, you know. Uh, like lies teenagers tell each other, right? <laughs> Though these were like grown-up people, but they, because they studied computer science, they had brain development. Each 20-something teenagers simultaneously <laughs> all sticks their hand into their pocket and holds the can of beans within. Yeah, just just to defend computer scientists here, I'm, I'm one myself, so as long as you burn yourself, it's okay to shit on other people. No, I think that's completely fair. Yeah, I think yeah, that's how that works, yeah. right? <laughs> You can be mean to and others, be, so long as that that dagger cuts you too. Yeah, my my field of study is a mental disease. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> wow. It makes people really weird. Just look at us. It's oh, man. Hand. You know, I will say, just to slightly digress, uh, the further you go in academia, the weirder people get. Because there's like a oh, yeah. certain sort of like discipline and also willingness to go through like pain for very little gain uh that's like sort of self-imposed and so like a friend of mine and i have this this thought that like every academic is really weird in their own way like the further you go the weirder people get that doesn't mean they're not brilliant it doesn't mean they're not doing good work they're just usually very strange personal take you probably also have to be right yeah to push to push through it and to enjoy it as much yeah yeah Okay. Anyway, so. back to these guys that came to that said they can reverse engineer uh, Famicom games. Yep. Could they? Well, uh, I believe that they could. Um, but they decide that they want to make a game for the Famicom. Okay. And why I'm like sitting on this point is that for context, when a bunch of random guys in a room say we should make a game for the Famicom, we might today call them an indie, like an indie developer. Okay. Yeah. Indie developers like didn't really exist in the same way that they do now. Like, right? Like these days, right? Like anybody can make like, you know, like crime at Burger Town and like throw it on Steam for fifty cents. Yeah, you can just download even software to make it easier for you to just make like game development is not easy, but it's right. at least um achievable for the average person. Right. If they want to. But there were no tools like this back then. So, like, no. a lot of developers would make arcade games, but making an arcade game was complicated, and it was actually more complicated, mostly, than making something for the Famicom. And so, they were also really focused in on this, like, machine that would let you play video games at home for free as many times as you wanted, right? Which made it more accessible for average people. So, they decide, all right, we want to make a game, and we want to make it for a home console. Enter. Junichi Masuda. Okay? Masuda, M-A-S-U-D-A. He was a couple of years younger than Tajiri and Sugimori, but he had a similar love of video games, so he's, like, younger than them. Okay? He had been programming simple games on his own, and, yet again, he hears about Tajiri through Game Freak. He finds out that they have a mutual friend at a technical college, and he gets that guy to introduce him to Tajiri, right? He's like, you know, you know Tajiri? Introduce me, right? He's so cool. Game Freak, Game Freak is like their badge of honor, right? They can use that as, you, you know, we mm -hmm. are these guys because that was such a big deal, right. probably, right? So, Sukimori and Masuda hit it off really well. Sukimori being the artist guy, okay? M Masuda had some experience with music, and Sugimori had a bunch of cassette tapes where he had recorded game music and they would like swap tapes of like recorded game music and talk about like which ones were like their favorites, which I think is adorable. Um, and so this whole story is like one of those heist movies where <laughs> slowly the team assembles and every person that joins has like the perfect complementary skill that would like further get us to where we actually want to go, which is making it like a complete video game that's just the graphics guy is a music guy and there's the mastermind mm -hmm. yeah yep I li i'm liking this story yep. <laughs> it's a long and winding tale but everybody here deserves a little bit of something so <laughs> um okay so they decide well masuda is going to be the guy who's going to make music for their games plus yeah. masuda had an apple II 
which used the same processor as the Famicom. So that would make programming easier. So they're like, this guy's a fit. Mm. Get him in here. Yeah. Okay. So this means that the team right now is Tajiri, Sugimori, Masuda, and three other programmers. I'm not naming them because they won't matter soon. So they have a team of six people. They had very little development experience between all of them. Some of them had none. They had no funding. They had no publisher to back them up. And other than people who knew them from the magazine, they had no connections in the game world. They would sit around in an apartment and work on games just for fun to see uh, what they could come up with. And one of the programmers has an idea. It was a game where you would use blocks to make little paths on the screen and you'd like move the blocks around to find items. And they create a small mock-up using some Mario sprites and they like start tinkering around with it, right? Because they like pull the Mario sprites and they use those as their placeholders. But then that programmer guy leaves the team and Tajiri's like, eh, I don't really like this. Let's reformat it. And Tajiri says that a lot of games on the NES were side scrollers. There's just so many fucking side scrollers. He didn't want to make a side scroller. He thought about games that you might play in an arcade, right? He spent all this time playing arcade games. He wants to make one. Those games use a fixed screen, right? Like you see the whole thing at once. He said that all the games he used to play had simple concepts and a simple English verb to express gameplay. He would learn English words as he went through, right? He had like fun. So think like dig for like dig dug. Yep. So he uses some of this guy's old assets. He iterates, and he comes up something based on the verb flip, or you would flip tiles to accomplish things. Now, I'm not sure how they came up with this name originally, but they end up calling this game Quinty, okay? Q-U-I-N-T-Y. Development on Quinty was difficult. They had to do everything from scratch because they did not have a dev kit. Yes. Okay, so think of all the tools you'd need. They don't have any of those. And everything I hear about this time when they're making Quinty sounds so scruffy. They would link the hardware of their computers together before that was easily done. Okay. They would buy super cheap game cartridges that no one liked. Masuda would burn the ROMs out of them and then replace them with the new ROM of Quinty and then solder it back together. And then they would test the game. Yeah, these guys were like real deal hackers. That's like use things in a way that they were not supposed to be used in, but thereby they learned a lot of stuff, I guess. That's really interesting. Exactly. Really cool. Yeah. Um, I was just kind of like in awe reading some of these stories of like how much work they went through to just make a game. The way their style of making the game is like that the whole team would basically work on it together. Like when they all could, a bunch of them would get together, everyone would make suggestions and they would pitch in where they had like relevant skills. And they're st they start pulling all-nighters, not because they have a deadline, but because they're just so fucking excited to be making video games. They're just like, fuck yes, this is awesome, let's stay up all night, we're really into it, right? Like, they would just throw themselves at it. And so, like, Sugimori's doing all the sprite work, he's trying to make all these characters for the game really expressive. He speaks at the time of how, like, he loved this, okay? So here's a quote from Sugimori. It didn't feel like a job to me as I was having a ball just making stuff. Whenever some problem would need fixing, I'd be like, woohoo, that's something else I get to take on. Just drawing dot art was a treat for me. I would happily work through the night. I remember finishing up a set of character animations and being asked to make the character a little larger. And I was like, well, just making them a little larger would necessitate a complete redraw. But then I thought, Oh, whatever. No sweat. And I simply just redrew everything. <laughs>
So they're having a blast. Um, but some of them have day jobs, right? Um, Masuda had a day job as a programmer, and he was writing language for corporations. He says he would get on the train to head home, and while he was waiting, he would write melodies for the game. And then he would go back to his place and create the music for the game at night, like when he got off work. Then he would go over and visit the team on the weekends and would drop by like, and drop off all his music, collaborate with everyone. And he said, quote, I had fun being creative. To me, it was a dream come true. They mentioned how good it felt to have the instant gratification of seeing your work be used. For example, Masudo does this like corporate work all day. He never sees what happens to his stuff afterward, right? They'd be like, do this for us. And he would hand it to somebody and he had no idea what it meant. It would disappear into the void, yeah. That must be frustrating. Right? Like some massive corporation, from what I understand. Similarly, Sugimori spoke about how drawing without the advantage of a computer was lengthy, but now both of them were able to create things immediately that could be translated onto the screen, and that was rewarding. And like a year goes by, okay? So like they do this for like a year. They create an early build, but they need a publisher. And this is where Tajiri takes the reins. From like now until like the end of this multi-part episode, pretty much any kind of business negotiations go through Tajiri. This is like what he's good at. So the rest of the team, they focus on the game. Tajiri approaches Nintendo and says, do you want to publish Quinty? They are not interested. Not enough mushrooms. Too many mushrooms? No, not enough mushrooms. Oh, that's fair. More, More mushrooms, like... It just needs mushrooms and boxes. Otherwise, it doesn't work. That's Nintendo, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I suppose you could probably make an entire movie about mushrooms and boxes, and it would sell out for like billions of dollars. Yeah, probably. Just, just like put a stamp with Nintendo on it, mm-hmm. and it's gonna be fine. Maybe. So that- you know, I'm joking about the the Mario movie here, but did you know that they started their own like movie publishing studio? like Nintendo movie publishing or something now, and they're yeah, just going to make did. a whole bunch of Nintendo movies. I'm concerned about how good they will be, but... Me too, but maybe it's just going to... Like, there's two possibilities. They're going to be really bad, and that's going to be funny in itself. Because everything is meta now, right? So it's okay. Yeah, It's, if it, it's okay if things are bad. We can still enjoy badness, because then we can make fun of Nintendo. Or if they can be really good. Is there is there a bad outcome here? Mm, the entire world yeah, is the bad so. outcome, so it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's it's okay. Just let them do it. Yeah, that's and we enjoy it either way. It's good. Corporations gonna corporation. <laughs> yes. Okay. Where were we? He was approaching Nintendo. Nintendo said no, and then Nintendo's did he go done. somewhere else? He does. So they were all big fans of the arcade cabinets that Namco had put out. Remember, mm, like, Xevious yeah, yeah. was published by Namco. Namco was really big with the arcades at the time, right? They were. And so they reach out to Namco about publishing their game. Um, but they're not really... Well, they want to reach out to Namco, and they're not really sure how to do that. Enter Ishihara. Remember that mm-hmm. guy, right? Yeah. He comes back. They contact him. And what I couldn't tell is whether they, like... Like he like set something up with Namco or he like gave them like some kind of help in navigating that. But through him some way, they talked to Namco. It wasn't clear to me. But the important part of the story is, is that Ishihara somehow gets Tajiri a chance to talk to Namco. And Tajiri says, I made a game. I'd like to show it to you. They agree to hear him out. He goes directly to them. Again, 
I really want to note how unusual this is, right? Like anybody can make a game now. You can go to a publisher. You can ask to publish. You can self-publish. Yeah. But back then, generally, you'd have an idea for a game. You'd go to a publisher. They would greenlight you. They'd hand you a bunch of money. So this is totally in the wrong order. He gets to Nomco. Nomco, they're not having it. They do not like the game. They said it was outdated. And the industry is largely moving on from these kind of games. But Tajiri makes an impassioned plea. He says that the fixed screen style of Quinty was a was an homage to Nomco specifically. He's basically saying, this is a game we made to pay tribute to you and the games that I grew up playing. And they're like, oh, well, in that case, yeah, yeah, we'll publish your game. That sounds great. Flatter us more. Nice. Good sales pitch. Yeah. So now they have funding. They have the backing of a huge video game publisher. And that meant that their work had more gravity. And they had to be a lot more focused in their efforts. Now they would be doing this full time. Things are ratcheting up. The team spends two years pushing themselves hard, working to get the game into a polished and finished state. They pull more all-nighters this time, not because they want to, but because they have to. And throughout all of this, again, they did not own a Nintendo dev kit. So they're still coding for the Famicom manually, burning out cartridges and things, right? And this created some interesting situations where they went against Nintendo's normal guidance for what would work on the Famicom, which made the game look really good in some ways and created graphical errors in other versions of the system. We'll touch on this in a second. To test their game, you know, they'd all sit around and play it. Someone notices something that needs fixed. They would tell everyone in the room and they'd adjust it. And they refused to change their game to be what the industry wanted or what was in vogue. But all games need a story, right? So they come up with lore. You need the lore. Yes. The main character is named Carton. C-A-R-T-O-N. Like spelled like a carton of milk. I don't know. (laughs) His girlfriend, Jenny, is kidnapped by Carton's sister, Quinty who is jealous that her brother is spending so much time with his new girlfriend. Quinty hides Jenny in a kingdom of dolls, and Carton must make his way through the kingdom to save her. Apparently, Quinty has power over these dolls in some way, I don't know, and sends them after Carton. But, storyline is weird, but it's a puzzle game. Very arcade style. You move around on a board of tiles. On those tiles can be enemies. You flip the tiles like a card to knock enemies over if you push enemies off the edge of the board you defeat them so it's all moving at the same time and you're flipping tiles as things are moving after you and every monster has like patterns right ah i see each type of doll is a different pattern they have a different mechanic you need to think around it in order to win like someone like jump over a square or someone only moving you know you get the idea Mm -hmm. yeah okay there were boss battles harder enemies you have to think on your feet okay they interestingly made it that you could make it two-player i listened to some commentary uh that said that the two-player mode of this game is really what made it shine it had a separate mode if you put in a code you could get a hundred more floors that were more difficult so this game is like really shaping up they really put a lot of effort into this it's their first release but as they're getting closer there are problems first nintendo started having concerns about the graphical glitches associated with quinty's programming now i have gone because I was exhaustive in my research of this episode. And I looked at these glitches. And let me tell you, 
they're like nothing. They're like some pixels in the corner of a screen that flash every once in a while. But Nintendo was so strict on this, they almost didn't publish the game. The team begs them, convinces them to do so. The game moves forward. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if this is right, but if, I feel like if you publish games on a level like Nintendo does or any big company, you would have to have this kind of scrutiny because you must assure the quality of your product. You do. And I get it. You know, they were really like a powerhouse in the industry um, back then. And, you know, they were able to to pull this. Um, how do I put this? They were able to have this sway because they were one of the only places to go of that magnitude. Right. Yeah. And they want to publish on their console. Yeah, and they, they want you know? to publish um, in their standard of quality. So I, I it, it seems right. mean, but I get it. Even if it's just a few pixels. Yeah. I do too. Okay. <clears throat> there was another small issue, though. This was a group of six guys sitting around in an apartment making video games. One of the companies involved, I don't know if it was Namco or Nintendo, they said, we don't want a contract with six guys randomly. We don't want six individual contracts. We want a contract with a company. So in 1989, the guys got together and create their official video game company. They chose the name of the magazine that had brought them all together. It's Game Freak. Game Freak. Yeah. And this is when Game Freak was born. Quinty was published on the Nintendo Famicom on June 7th, 1989. Their first video game on the shelves. I couldn't find sales numbers. Some of these games are hard to find sales numbers on, you know, when they're that old. But Quinty was seen to be commercially successful in Japan. Sugimori put together a manga that promoted the game that was actually quite lengthy. That didn't officially release until 1990, but it was popular enough that the Quinty manga ran until 1995. Oh. So, right? I was like, oh, like a shitty one-off? Like, no, it was like lengthy enough that they published it for years. Awesome. Now they decide that they want to do a U.S. release, right? Now we're going international. We've got a game out. We want to be international. But they didn't have a U.S. publisher. The story goes that Tajiri traveled to the west coast of the United States to meet with publishers. He rented a car and drove all over the west coast looking for someone who would publish the game. The biggest complaint from companies was that it was too cute for American audiences. He lands a deal with the video game publishing company Hudson Soft. They agree they will publish the game, but they need to have some discussions internally because they think that the game needs to be darker and scarier to suit <laughs> American audiences. They need a they need to add yeah. they needs to cut deeply. Hudson Soft makes a number of changes. First, they change the name of the game to Mendel Palace. Okay, Quinty, cute, fun. They changed it to Mendel Palace. They changed the color palette to be darker. The box art uh, was changed to be more of a fantasy style. I'll send you... Here's the box art for Quinty. Okay. Yeah. Really cute. And then here's the box art for Mendel Palace. Oh, no. It's <laughs> okay. so dark and spooky. And there's a punk rock dude in the background. <laughs> Okay, the dolls were made to look more sinister, and they changed the story to be that a princess named Candy is trapped in her dreams, and it is up to the character Bon Bon to save her. Okay, viewers at home will not be able to do this, but I think it is worth the slight diversion, Docs. I sent you both of the commercials, they're very short. Would you watch the Quinty one and describe it to everybody, and then watch the Mendel Palace one and describe it, if you would give this to me? Okay, Quinty one... Uh is 
that you have like a really high pitched voice uh, telling us what is happening, I guess, in, in, in Japanese and there's children running around, drawing on the ground. Really, really cute. It doesn't really show anything of like there's like a two second. I don't know. There's not much of the game. It, it, it's, it's just really cute. And then the American one I watched before that, like a little, like a little movie that's really scary and spooky. <laughs> and I don't know, a little bit like there's, there's evil monsters and, and there's this, this, I, I don't know. It's really dark. Um, I think the big I, thing I, that stuck out to me, not to talk over you here, is like it goes from like, here's this cutesy, like, here's this game is about flipping tiles. So let's have a bunch of people get flipped over on a rug. <laughs> Very cute to like mental palace. And there's this woman in an 80s like outfit and she's running. And there's these big scary critters like, <laughs> like running yeah, after like, her. It's like, I don't know, the hills have eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gave me those vibes too. Totally different, right? Yeah, yeah, slightly okay. rapey. I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it's definitely a product of the time. So. Yeah, I don't know. But, okay, the game does all right in Japan, but not the U.S. Okay, this rebranding doesn't work. Quote. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Tajiri says, "Quote: It sold sluggishly on a popular system." <laughs> Which is a nice way to say it didn't do well. <laughs> so that gives you some idea of what he thought about sales. Still, this is still considered to be a success for an indie game company, right? And of course, yeah. as always, it's time to think about what's next. Gotta keep that momentum going. Now, 1989, the Game Boy had just released on the Japanese market. Suddenly, there's a portable game console. People are just using out and about. You can fucking play video games anywhere. And one thing that really fascinated Tajiri was this idea that you could link your Game Boy to another Game Boy with a physical cable and you could play games with other people just fucking out there in the world. You could meet somebody and be like, dude, are you playing Tetris? And you could play Tetris with that person right there. Yeah. How fucking cool is that? It's 1989. It's the goddamn future. Okay. So he's like. The story goes, he's like sitting and he's watching some kids play Tetris with their link cable and he starts imagining living organisms moving back and forth across the cable. Some stories say he imagined bugs crawling across them, but either way, something clicks in his head. He stays up into the night working an idea for a game. He claims that the idea for the game came from his time in nature as a child. He looked at modern Japan, children being pushed to study which he thought was isolating them from each other. This very strict, like, schooling. Yeah. As Japan grew, the increasing urbanization and cityscape kept them, in his opinion, from experiencing the natural world like he had. His hope was that he could create a game that could do two things. Reconnect children to each other and give kids a similar experience to what he had finding bugs and creatures in nature. The basic concept that they're working with was this. What if you could go out into the world and capture kaiju and make them fight each other? If you don't know what a kaiju is, think giant monsters it's like giant, Godzilla. Giant, giant ocean Godzilla monster, right? Exactly. Yeah. In some of the early drafts, you would do this by having a character improve their charisma, convince a kaiju to fight, and you would like charm them. But what would this game look like? 
first they had questions where would you keep these giant monsters the solution you, you go ahead did you have to catch them all <laughs> <laughs> oh you see where this is going I've been seeing where this is going for a long time. I'm just not spoiling it for everybody else. <laughs> the solution came from some episodes of the long-running show Ultraman. I told you we'd come mm, back yeah. to this. In some episodes... Does, does Ultraman fight Kaiju? No, but Ultra... Well, I think he does sometimes. One of the characters would keep giant Kaiju in capsules and then they would use unleash the monsters from these capsules from the wiki quote capsule kaiju are monsters aliens or ultras which is capitalized that exist in a capsule most of the time only to materialize when used by someone it's like a a, a ball made for kaiju like a kaiju ball yeah 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 like a pocket kaiju something a pocket like kaiju. that kaiju yeah. yeah pocket what kaiju call ball that? Pocket kaiju, maybe. Yeah, something. Well, you know, we'll we'll get back to it. Yeah, you know, we'll. I think I think we'll figure it out. Yeah, something. It probably didn't work out. Like this is like this idea seems odd. Maybe maybe is is he going to change his mind again? I don't know. I mean, bugs, bugs on a cable. That's like yeah, catching them in balls. I don't know. I don't know. Seems weird. So you got this game. You collect kaiju. You battle them. But what Did if we, this link? Were we, were we just like reenacting uh, Satoshi's father? So. <laughs> uh, what is this? Uh, <laughs> fucking kaiju battler! I got you a job being a lineman, and you didn't want it. You burned my. You burned my friendship with Richard. Okay, he he went through all this hassle to try and get you a job, and you blew him off. What? So you can make kaiju slapper or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> Slap. Slap this kaiju. Gotta slap them all. Gotta slap them all. <laughs> oh, man. Mm. Yeah, sorry. You I'm were, laughing you so were hard already continuing your story, and I had to do this, but I'm. No, it's okay. Uh, it's I, I'm la- I've been laughing so hard I'm like perspiring. <laughs> so, okay. Whew. All right. So yeah, you collect kaiju, you battle them. But what of this link cable? Well, they start talking. What if you used the link cable, and you could trade kaiju with each other? And at this point, the link cable had only really been used for competitive things. But if they were going to make a game about collectible things, wouldn't it be cool if you could give them to each other? That would other? be so cool. It would be maybe so cool. Maybe like this, like this, if, if these kaijus could like get better, and maybe sometimes mm-hmm. they only get better if you like trade them. That would be so cool. So you yeah. would encourage the trading. Mm-hmm. I bet they didn't think of that. Mm, I guess we'll find out as we go through this two-part. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, okay. Um... Tajiri tells Sugimori that it will be like Menko cards. Okay, M-E-N-K-O. What are Menko cards? Just as a quick aside, Menko cards are essentially Japanese trading cards, but they've been around for hundreds of years. Okay, so they they would make these cards, and you can almost think of them as like art, right? That people would like give each other, and they would have important things in Japanese culture at the time, right? They've been around for a while. But when Tajiri and Sugimori were kids, 
they were mostly trading cards that they were playing with that had anime characters on them. Okay. Oh, so it's like long-lasting trading cards, like like baseball cards, but culturally culturally relevant. You got it. Sugimori said, quote, it instantly sounded like an amazing idea, but we weren't really sure how to make it a game at first. Yeah. Tajiri, quote, for example, in Dragon Quest, there is a rare item called the Madcap, and Sugimori was talking about how he had two of them. I had spent so many days trying to get a Madcap of my own, but I just couldn't get one. So I just thought, well, since he has two, why can't he give me one? So our original idea for Pokemon wasn't, we want to make an RPG. Instead, it was, we want to trade. Also, I just said Pokemon, which is- You said the name, Tyler. You ruined it. I said the name. So now that the Band-Aid is ripped off, we're going to talk about Pokemon. But I think if you didn't know that we were talking about Pokemon at this point, um, you probably don't know Pokemon. Probably not. Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, throughout this, I will probably use Pokemon a few times before they actually arrive at the name- um, they called it Pocket Monsters for a while, um, which they still do in a lot of places. But anyway, we'll get to that. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> um, yeah, so then he says, the fact that it's an RPG came later. They talked about making it a small game that was action-focused. Then they saw a game that came out in 1989 called The Final Fantasy Legend, which was made by Square. And they were like, well, wait, maybe we could do something like that, too make it a non-action kind of game on the Game Boy? Some kind of RPG thing. So they draw out their plans, and they expected to be able to make a Game Boy game in about six months. Okay? They're like, we can do this in six months. Remember that they say they could do this in six months. This culminates (laughs) in a large pitch document. Okay? Um, A large pitch document full of what the story would be like, art by Sugimori, a discussion of how the battles would work, and some examples of what they expected the 200 different kaiju to look like. Um, I will send you some pictures right now, Docs. Here's the cover of said pitch document. Here's a battle from within it, just as a couple. There's probably some critters in there that you might recognize. That's really cool. This is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can already see stuff in there that we will we will recognize later. Yep. I love this. I'm, I'm just going to just have to repeat that they said that we're going to make one of the most influential franchises ever in the world. Yep. Which they of course didn't know within six months. Six months. Yes. Yes. Yep. Six that months. They're going to do it in six months. Yeah, yeah. They're going to bang it out. Yep. Supposedly, I, I have not seen the whole document. There's like a 20, 20-ish pictures in there that um, Sugimori illustrated. Um, and they would call this game Capsule Monsters. Okay, it's a little on the nose, but you've got capsules, right? That's the main yeah. thing of it. And you have kaiju, capsule monsters. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. They work on this concept for a while. The timeline is a little wonky here, but I think it maybe took them about a year to create this pitch document. They were doing other things at the time, which we'll get to. That might be a little too long. But anyway, they come up with this pitch document and they realize that with the scope of the game, maybe they couldn't do what they did previously, which was just make a game and then hope someone publishes it. They would need to work for someone at this point. They take the concept to their friend Ishihara, who shows up here again, uh, as they had done with their previous game. He sees this pitch document and he is fucking floored. He decides this game needs to be seen by someone big. This game needs to be seen by Nintendo themselves. He pledges he will get them a meeting. 
Now, how does Ishihara do this, right? Like we've had him sort of shadowy in the background for a while. Ishihara was actually working at Ape Incorporated, which you might know as the people who made Earthbound. Oh, yeah. He was working with a man named Satoru Iwata. Iwata, for those who are video game lore nerds, was this hugely influential designer for Nintendo at the time. Like, this guy deserves, like, his own episode. Like, our friend Alex that we know actually gave me an Iwata book. Like, I have just an Iwata book. That's how influential he was. So through this connection, right, they know Ishihara. Ishihara knows Iwata. Iwata sets up a meeting with the head of Nintendo's Entertainment Analysis and Development Software Division. It's a mouthful. The head of this division is Shigeru Miyamoto, another famous figure who deserves an episode, but yeah. I'll stop doing that. <laughs> so we've got some big players here for an indie developer, okay? And what's crazy is that everyone involved agrees to a meeting. I read an article that kind of put this all into perspective. Here is a team of developers in their early 20s who have a single game published who are pitching a game to Nintendo in the early 90s at the time in which Nintendo was like the biggest player on the gaming market. That is just kind of hard to imagine, right? It just didn't happen. Yeah, and for some reason they cared about about that. Yep. As if, as if there was not dozens of other people who did the, who tried the same. Yep. I think that having the clout of having sort of these internal connections are how they got there personally yeah yeah they go into the meeting tajiri immediately starts having trouble explaining the concept of what he wants to create to nintendo the nintendo is also having difficulty grasping basically what the hell this game is it's like this kaiju battling thing it's an rpg it also has collectible critters and i guess you can like trade them i don't know it's just all super foreign to these people at the time but despite that the meeting is a complete success, and Nintendo decides they want to publish Capsule Monsters. This m maybe also describes something well that Pokemon is. Maybe not the first thing that is that, but it's it's like a first one of the first games that's difficult to explain because, like many games, you can explain in a few words because they have simple concepts, but Pokemon really doesn't. Mm -hmm. It is a bit. It, it is a convoluted game that is about a lot of stuff, so you yes. can't really pitch it easily, right? Especially if it has never existed before. Like now, you just go, yeah. "It's Pokemon," and you sort of iterate on that, right? Yeah. Like, "Hey, kid, you know that uh, that Pikachu thing you see everywhere? Yeah, it's like his game. Yeah, you know." Yeah. So they're in, and they said, "Yes, we'll publish, and we want you to make it a Game Boy exclusive," and. Apparently, the thing that really put them over the edge was this trading mechanic. They were just thought that it was such a cool idea. And Tajiri pitches that they think that they could create their game by December of 1991. It was early 1990. And Nintendo says, if Game Freak can self-fund their development, they're like, we'll, we'll publish this but like for you, but you have to fund it, then we'll do it. Okay? Early 1990, work begins in earnest on the game. They have Nintendo's backing. They needed to take their pitch document and turn it into an actual game. They start hashing out mechanics. They start developing different pieces of what Capsule Monsters would look like. 
And then they realized that what they had decided on would take them way longer <laughs> than it had taken them to create Quinty. They were like, oh no, this is like massive. This team is super small. They did not have a lot of money going around. So Tajiri is like moonlighting on the side and he's doing publishing work. Okay, now I couldn't get a full list here, but he like did some work for magazines. He wrote a book about his youth called A Catcher in Pac-Land, like Pac-Man, right? He yeah. was doing some advertising work. Um, you know, he, he's just like trying to get, get this influx of cash into Game Freak. And this is like maybe slightly out of order, but like also at this time, Ken Sugimori, like throughout the early years of the company, he was there, but he didn't think of himself as like a full staff member. He thought of himself as like a freelance guy. He was convinced he was going to go like, like be a manga artist still. Yep. And he didn't want to be shackled by this company, even if he liked these guys. Quote, while I had my regrets of living the lifestyle of a manga artist, I honestly also felt that I was at my limit. On the other hand, it was really fun working at Game Freak. Apparently, the president was waiting for this time to come, and after two years since the founding of the company, he asked again, how would you like to become an employee? And as you might guess, Sugimori took the offer and officially joined the staff. Okay? So this is kind of like pivotal in his story. But Ishihara is very much still in contact with the team. He wants to know how this is all going. He wants to help them with this development. He's doing his own thing, you know, at Ape Incorporated, but he, he's like vested. And he sees that they're having problems with money. And he says that maybe Game Freak should work on some other small projects so that they could get money for their company and also hire more staff. This would allow them to focus on what they really want to do, which was Capsule Monsters. The team chats it out and they decide that they're going to work on other games. Capsule Monsters goes on to the back burner. The SNES was on the horizon, the Super Nintendo and was slated to be released in a year and a half. If you remember from previous episodes, the DSP sound chip in the Super Nintendo was manufactured by Sony. Sony was very proud of this Sony-Nintendo partnership, and they started shopping around for games. They wanted games that could promote the capabilities of the chip that could be released near the console launch date. Um, I couldn't find much on this, but I guess that Tajiri... Uh, through his like sort of moonlighting extra work had done some advertising work for sony so he had a foot in the door and inside of game freak they wanted to figure out a game that like could fit this release schedule so sony puts out a call for submissions game freak gets to work okay so like tajiri having all of these like feet and all of these doors is like basically the way that they push this forward It's really helpful. He's, a, he's like the biggest multiplier in this entire story. He really is. Yeah. So there was a part-time worker at the company who put together a game design document about an RPG where you would play as a slime. Okay, think mm -hmm. of like the blue slime from uh, Dragon Quest, right? Yeah. Um, just like this low-level enemy in most RPGs, but in this game, the slime was the hero. Oh, <laughs> slime game. Tajiri and Sugimori are so into this idea. So they pitch it to Sony. Sony had a list of candidates that they wanted to pull from, and they decide that they really like this idea of a slime game. So Sony, the Sony Game Freak partnership is born. Tajiri and Sugimori hash out what this game's going to look like. They want it to be an action RPG. 
But then start thinking, well, what if you like leaned into the slime aspect of this character and they think about like what the design is going to be and they want to challenge themselves to make something totally different from Quinty and also totally different from Capsule Monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They toss all these ideas at the wall. Maybe the slime could like stretch and reach to get things. Maybe he could yeah. like split into all these different pieces and you could control multiple ones. Maybe he would like change color and have different abilities. And then they're like, wait, this is getting completely out of hand. We need to just simplify this. What yes. about <laughs> the slime can stick to things? The slime Done. can pick up a ball and toss it, <laughs> right? Yeah, keep it simple. Yeah. Right. So they want to go with this slime game and they're working with Sony and it seemed like actually very beneficial for them. A lot of the grunt work is done on the Sony side of things. Sugimori would create a lot of the art and then he would give that art to the people at Sony and they would turn it into pixel art. He didn't have to do that anymore. But he nice. kept yeah. emphasizing that it had to be cute. It has to be cute. Uh, otherwise, children, children wouldn't buy it. An early demo of the game goes out to trade shows and it is called jelly bean okay uh, and then the name is changed to jerry bean uh, <laughs> when it gets closer to release supposedly this is because at the same time there was another game in development by ocean software called jelly boy and they thought that this was too similar jelly bean jelly boy and they need a different name Okay. So they changed it to Jerry Bean? Jerry Bo J Jerry Jerry Bean. <laughs> Jerry Bean. <laughs> How is that different? How did they just change two letters and be like, oh, now that's a different name? Before it was too similar for us, but now now we can why not reinvent it completely? Why not call it slime or something? I These people listen. Need, uh, this is I don't know. <laughs> They were set, whenever, man. In these episodes, whenever we come to the naming part and they have like these naming problems where things are named weirdly, I never understand what's the problem. No, I don't I get it either. Do. Okay. The game releases in Japan on September 13th, 1991. The story goes like this, because we need the lore. The main character is Prince Jerry Bean. After his father dies, he is set to marry a princess named Emmy. And then he will take over the kingdom. But his evil brother, Tom, <laughs> wants to be king instead. And so Tom goes to a wizard and asks that wizard to cast a spell on his uh, brother, Jerry. Stop, man. This is just too much. <laughs> Jerry gets turned into a giant blue uh, ball of slime that curiously looks like a jelly bean. You can move around levels doing platforming challenges and fighting various enemies that were trying to eat you. Jerry could change forms and climb around the walls and squish into pipes. The whole thing has a very cutesy vibe to it. That sounds nice. From what I can tell, it sold all right in Japan, but it wasn't a huge commercial success. Uh, I sent you a picture of, it looks like, I believe Sugimori made a manga about it called Jerry Boy. It's totally... It looks style. really cute. Yeah. Which is what he wanted, right? Like he wanted. It has to be cute, man. Has to be cute. We yes, must make it cute. This, this, this is really cute. I like this. It is really cute. Um, then they send it to the U.S. and again, the U.S. takes it and makes it into something really weird and yeah. edgy. So they remove all the story elements of the game. People don't want fucking story. They just want action. They need action and death and murder. And then they only mention the story in the manual. They also rename the game Smart. They name it Smart Ball. 
and they made the front cover more action. It's just action. So it goes like it's like this giant weird blue ball and there's like a rooster thing and there's like meteors and the ball is flying over a city. It's uh, anyway, I don't think that did much for sales. (laughs) What's your country is so deeply broken. (laughs) I I, I can't even I can't even begin to. To explain to you <laughs> how, how this relates to that other thing, but yeah, cool. <laughs> so take, anyway, take, take good things and make them bad. Take good things and make them angry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is skipping ahead a little bit, but yes, Sony. Sony is like, well, it sold all right in Japan. It didn't do well in the U.S. But what if we made a sequel? Okay, let's make a sequel. But this sequel was never released. They did work on a mostly finished game. There are actually ROMs out there on the internet where you can play what was made. Um, it would have expanded the series to six characters who all had different abilities and had a bunch of themed areas. And you might ask, why didn't it release? Well, those of you who have listened to the uh, our previous episodes about the relationship between Sony and Nintendo... Uh. As tensions between the two companies heated up, Sony decided that they weren't going to publish games on the consoles of their opponents. And so the game got cut. I'll put a rumor here that I've seen reported in some online circles. I have seen some discussion. I don't know that I believe this, but I've seen some discussion claiming that Sony thought that if Jerry Ball or Jerry Boy or fucking Jelly Boy or whatever the hell it is, this game, (laughs) that if it sold well... They thought about buying Game Freak. They would have purchased Game Freak. But because they didn't, because the game didn't do as well as they thought, they bought a different company called Psygnosis. Oh, yeah. Now, that is a fun little rumor where we can all sit around and think, what if Pokemon had been a Sony game, not a Nintendo game? But while I should be clear that I have seen this repeated... I could not find a single source for like confirming it. So just, you know, take that as you will. Okay. Yeah. Weird. But weird. I mean, that's like uh alternate universe stuff where you, you, you don't know how it would have turned out. Right. Um, I mean, they, they are just, they just did this Jerry beans thing to make some money, right? This is not because they really care for this game. They just want to make pocket monsters. Yeah. I, I think they, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's what their real focus is. So they're just kind of churning stuff out. So, So now, Game Freak has two games under their belt, and they still have this Capsule Monsters thing going on in the background. But from what I can tell at the time, the company was still really having trouble um, keeping the lights on. And at the rate that they were going, they would have difficulties getting Capsule Monsters to completion. And this is when Nintendo makes the company an offer. What if they took even more time off from Capsule Monsters? If so... Nintendo says that Game Freak could make a game based around Yoshi. And could they do it in the next couple of months? Mm. The two companies could collaborate, just whip something out. Okay. I find this interesting because even though Nintendo declined to publish Quinty and Mendel Palace, the company was starting to see the value in what Game Freak was bringing to the table. But the truth is, is that Game Freak uh, just really needed the money, right? Like this is an offer you can't refuse kind of thing. Yeah. So the company accepts. They sit down to figure out what the game would look like. The game would be called Yoshi no Tamago, which roughly translates to Yoshi's Egg. Okay, you can call it Yoshi's Egg. Or 
as it was known in the US later, Yoshi. Or uh, in Europe, I think it was called Mario and Yoshi. But all the same game. On the Nintendo mm-hmm. side, yeah. Ishihara uh, and Miyamoto would be the producers. Okay? So Ishihara is starting to come over. He's starting to take more of a direct role now. Sugimori comes up with the gameplay yeah, concept. Tajiri would be the director. Masuda would do the music, just like before. Stylistically, Yoshi is a puzzle game. It is a falling block game similar to Tetris, but the blocks that fall are Mario enemies as well as Yoshi eggshells. Instead of moving the falling blocks and figuring out where they go, the screen has stacks, like stacks of things, and then you have Mario at the bottom, and he goes around and he swaps the stacks. So you have to figure out what stack you want it to be on. You can't change the thing that's falling. Yeah. You eliminate blocks on the stack by matching monsters. And the game like had some charm to it, even though it was like this quick thing they did. Masuda spent a long time programming sprites in the menu, and so he made all the music too. And so he made like the sprites in the menu dance to the music, and they actually line up. Um, it was actually pretty cute. Um, you could play in endless mode to see how far you could get, or you could play a, a, a levels that were sort of set and timed. You could play a two-player mode because they're really focusing on that. It was cute. Um, I think I have the cover here that I can give you. Yes, like a big picture of Yoshi, and then there's these uh, all these very well-known um, enemies from Mario dropping down, like in a Tetris. Yep. And um, also, game no, screen. this is the very first game that was like Yoshi's official game. Okay, Yoshi had not had a game previously. Like Yoshi had been in games, oh, but this was okay. Yoshi's first game. Yeah, he was like a side character. Yeah, right. Yoshi releases in Japan on December 14th, 1991. Also, um, just to keep track of our timeline, um, this is originally when they said that they thought Capsule Monsters yeah. would be done. Yeah, yeah. Right? They so, are completely out of schedule. Yeah, yeah. Yep, totally off schedule. Um, they made two versions of the game, one for the NES and one for the Game Boy. It sold 500,000 copies on the first day. Bam. Whoa. Just kicks off the market. Um. But the reviews were kind of mixed, saying that it was fun and addictive, but that like the core mechanics of it were a bit repetitive. Um, There were some concerns involving the gameplay and controls, but it was bright. It was colorful. It leaned on this popularity of Mario. People already knew it. You know, it's Yoshi's first game. Then, of course, because this is Sugimori and every game they make has to have a tie in manga. This time it was produced by someone else. I pulled this from the Super Mario wiki. The manga has two different stories. The first involves Yoshi opening a restaurant called Yoshi's Pizza, and a second story divided into three separate parts that involves Yoshi, Mario, Luigi, and Peach embarking on a journey to find his mother. Who, Yoshi's mother? Yoshi's mother. Yes. What? I don't know. I didn't dig in the Yoshi what? lore. <laughs> yeah. What? 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 What's with Yoshi's mother? Wait, I don't where, know. They where, have to find she, her. Where's she out of the picture? What did they do? Didn't <laughs> didn't the, didn't didn't Mario like steal Yoshi from his home and then Yoshi's like Yoshi grows up and he goes to Mario and he's like, um, where's mom? And Mario's like, uh, I totally didn't steal you from your mother after after killing her violently. Let's go looking for your mom. Luigi laid an egg, kid. <laughs> that's why you're green stop asking questions kiddo (laughs) start jumping 
Start I jumping. Need, I need you to double jump. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> okay, dinosaur I, won't get off my back. <laughs> <laughs> won't let me on his, I suppose. <laughs> I would read that manga of like you really do. gritty shithead mario being rude to yoshi <laughs> his adopted child <laughs> nintendo would sue the fuck out of the person that did that <laughs> yeah you can't even make fa- like fan art man they'll come after you with their army yeah, of lawyers their, their lawyers will be knocking on our doors tomorrow yeah well yeah i could yeah it's nice to have people over <laughs> <laughs> okay all right <laughs> it took until June of 1992 for Yoshi to release in the U.S., December of 1992 for it to release in Europe, but overall sales for the game were high. It apparently kept selling in Europe for years, sold over 100,000 copies in 1997 alone. That was five years after release. I don't know what it was. Europe fucking loved Yoshi, but like way after everyone else did. I, who doesn't like Yoshi? What's your problem, rest of the world? Yoshi's, Yoshi's like the best mario character i, I mean I, I think everybody can agree that who is the worst mario character can you tell me if you say toad i'm gonna slap you <laughs> no it's mario mario is the worst <laughs> mario character don't talk shit on my bro toad <laughs> he's like the most unlikable dude in the entire universe even though he doesn't do that much but he's terrible toad is awesome i'm, I'm into toad yeah i'm into toad i'm team toad all right <laughs> so this is a big hit right Yoshi's Egg, Yoshi and Mario, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Yoshi, Yoshi's abusive relationship with his dad. It's popular. All right. <laughs> and the reason that is, I wanted to highlight. Is, the, is Luigi Yoshi's dad now? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's why they're both green. That makes so much yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> I made that joke earlier, but you're too yeah. tired to catch it. It's okay. I just want. I know. I know that Luigi laid an egg. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it, it's only clicking now. <laughs> okay. Fucking a. Okay. So <laughs> it took until June, right? It releases. It sells really well, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's a big hit. The reason I wanted to highlight this is because it is the first time that Game Freak and Nintendo had this good working relationship, and it is highly successful. This is an important milestone in these companies moving, working together forward, moving forward rather. And the money starts flowing in. And so Tajiri credits the international release of Yoshi as what saved them and their projects. Quote, making Yoshi ended up really helping us uh, out a lot as a company. I was extremely grateful it was released worldwide instead of only in Japan. We accepted the project for financial reasons and making money from outside Japan really saved us. Back then, most home console games were made in Japan, but it was obvious they'd eventually be sold in the international market. So I was really happy to see the game recognized as a true fundamental in gaming history all around the world. Awesome. Okay. So we've really been digging into shit that isn't Capsule Monsters. Um, You know, it's taken up the focus of most of this episode. And the reason that I've done this is because each of these games gave them something that they needed moving forward it established them like as a company in many ways it set up relationships that they needed and importantly it gave them money so these are the only games and probably also gave them skills that will deeply influence how 
Yes. I, Pokemon will look. I might have, I might have cut a quote in here, but I think it was Ishihara who somewhere said, uh, oh yeah, I have it here. Um, he said in his opinion, this isn't a direct quote, but juggling these other games as they tried to flesh out what capsule monsters could be actually made them more mindful of their own creative style. And his thought was that it actually made them create a better product as they keep challenging themselves yeah. with all these weird games as they're like juggling the one they want. I, I think it's important to know as we like dig into Pokemon um, what this background was. So what I'm going to do real quick, we're not going to do a deep dive into all the other shit that they made, but I think it's, it, I think it would be fun just for like a couple of minutes here just to talk about a bunch of weird shit they made. We just won't do as much of a like dive. Yeah. Here's other stuff they made. Magical Taru Ruto Kun for the Mega Drive. Released in April of 1992, it was a side-scrolling game where you play as a middle schooler fighting off enemies, which I think are his bullies. I think it is inspired by an anime of the same name. Don't quote me on that. Never released outside of Japan. They worked on Mario and Wario. It was released in August of 1993. It was a Mario-themed puzzle game that made use of the Super Famicom mouse accessory. Like a mouse that you'd plug in you as the mouse accessories for consoles ah i had one i had one for the genesis it was i had one for the playstation one yeah it was disgusting it was terrible don't ever do it um you as the player need to guide mario around as wario throws objects on him uh, uh that land on him and block his view like think he'll throw things onto his head I guess that classic Mario, right? Like, aha, I'll stop you, Mario. Here's a bucket. <laughs> um, the team apparently, when they started off, they wanted to use the gun peripheral called the Super Scope, but they couldn't get it to work. And they made a mouse based game instead. I don't know. I, would you like shoot Wario? Like, I have no fucking idea what you would do with this game. Who knows? You shoot him in the head. Uh, I will note for the, for the American audiences. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a, there's a tiny little easter egg about mario and wario in pokemon i'll tell you about it later but Ooh. um nonton to nonton to i fucked that name up super hard uh it was a puzzle game released for the pc in april of 1994 it was a tetris style game based on a children's book character it seemed like it was mostly a game for kids um and then the big one that we didn't get to was called pulse man it released for the mega drive in 1994 this gets real fucking weird, man. It was a side-scroller action game with some, uh, I will say, great music, really sharp pixel graphics, good gameplay. The story. <clears throat> a scientist made the world's greatest and most powerful in artificial intelligence that he called Sea Life. Then he <laughs> fell in love with his own AI and, quote, combined his DNA with the AI's core. <laughs> <laughs> producing a child this child was pulse man half human half sea life and i guess like he fucking solves crimes or something i don't know but then pulse man's dad turned evil because he hung out with his cyberspace girlfriend too long and pulse man has to stop his dad dad that how are babies made? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Oh, you should probably start killing each other. Can answer these questions? <laughs> it's easier if we just fight to the death than to explain how this went down, dude. <laughs> I really don't want to talk about this to you. Sam. I would rather die than explain how this happened. <laughs> anyway, only physically released in Japan, but it did briefly make an appearance on the Sega Channel peripheral in the U.S. Pulse Man. Yeah. Whew. Okay. <laughs> so, as the company progressed, they eventually grew to around 10 people. And while they had side projects, their focus began to be capsule monsters. And then the trouble began. As work progressed with capsule monsters, the conditions at Game Freak, like the work conditions, began to be pretty bad. I could not find detailed specifics. But from what I read, the staff was heavily overworked and conditions were bad enough that all three of their programmers that they had on staff came to Tajiri one day and announced that they were leaving. Shit. Tajiri tried to convince them to stay. No avail. They were done. They hit their limit. All the programmers gone. Suddenly, the company is in a bit of a crisis. Well, they can't just hire a bunch of new programmers who could do the same level of work. No. Further, they had committed to other games. I think they were working on uh, Pulse Man at this time, Mario and Wario 2. It seemed like, given the state of things, that the project, Capsule Monsters, was likely to be severely delayed or abandoned entirely at no. this rate. And that's, and that's why we never got Pokemon. That's why that's... we never got Pokemon. Yeah. yeah. But we know this isn't how it happened. How they solve this problem is interesting, but you will have to wait until the next episode of Codex Rex Z or whatever this is to find out what went down because this story is way too long and we're already you, almost at like you cliffhanging piece of shit. That's what I do. So. <laughs> so there you go. There is everything you need to know to understand how Game Freak got to Pokemon without ever actually getting you to Pokemon. So sorry. That was a long winding intro. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that tracks with me, right? Like <laughs> it does, yeah. I mean it's good that we split it up, I think. I think it's good that I people so. now have to wait another six months <laughs> to to hear the continuation of this. Oh no, we gotta record this in like in two weeks, I think. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. We found out <laughs> that the uh we found out that the podcasting service we use uh <clears throat> now charges money, but they did give me a two week uh two week free trial to use the thing I'd been using for free. Uh so no, this will be out soon. Yeah. Yeah. So Okay, uh, well, we'll save the long wrap-up of things for when the story's actually finished, but uh, Docs, do you have any passing thoughts before we finish up? I think that I find this character... Uh, I, I was trying to remember his first name. I used it a lot, but now I've forgotten. Satoshi. Uh, Satoshi, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I find him very story and i i think i heard before that pokemon was inspired by some kid that liked to collect bugs but i could never really remember where i heard it and it's nice to hear the story of so thank you for yeah. this but i don't have any further thoughts but okay. this was a fun episode yeah this uh this took me a long time but uh um every I, I, like i just wanted to do pokemon right like i was yeah. just like oh let's find out about pokemon but like 
every one of these games, every one of these things is really integral to understanding what Pokemon is. So I thought, well, you know, we've got the time. We'll make it a two-parter. And we absolutely, I mean, Pokemon is such an essential part of my video game culture. That two episodes seems legitimate, uh, not legitimate, adequate to uh, to discuss what it is. I because I mean, I, I mean, you you still have to go through a bunch of stuff about what Pokemon is, man. There's not just there's not just this game. There's more than that. Pokemon is a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, um, you, you will have to. I'm I want to see how you do that. This is a big one. I'll do my best. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> You'll see. But anyway, that's it for me. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, yes, thank you. We appreciate all of you. Um, thanks to for editing. Thanks to my wife Andrea who translated some of the interviews for this episode for me. Um, and thanks to all of you. Good to be yes. back. Uh, be safe. Uh, be nice to other people. And also, don't. Don't don't go too addicted to video games, but please play a lot of video games because they're really fun and I love them and they give 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 us joy and it's cool. Uh, please send your yeah. best uh, arcade floor goblin costumes to codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. Um, I want to see you skitter. I want to see you skitter across the floor. Do do the skitter on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Skitter from girl. But, <laughs> if you if you rub two Sorry. coins together. You will, you will hear uh, his breath behind your neck because he's going to be there hanging on the wall waiting for you to drop them. Hunter Bug. Hunter <laughs> Bug is coming. <laughs> With that, I'll catch you later, friends. See ya. Catch you later. Bye. You know, I was, uh, if you are doing something while you are eating, uh, like you focus more on the thing you're doing and not what you're eating. And they've done studies where you are more likely to eat like way more calories if you are focused on something other than the food. So like, you're like watching a movie, right? That doesn't make sense. I always eat everything that's in front of me. So how would I eat more or less <laughs> calories? Depending on if I do something or not. Like I, I eat what's well, in front like, let's of say me you have... and it's always the same calories. Well, like, let's say you have, like, a big bag of chips, right? Like, and you don't want to eat the whole bag. And I know that there's people that like don't eat whole bags of chips. Like, I, I am not one I'm of one people. of them. I know I cannot. If you open a bag of chocolate, I eat the entire bag of chocolate. If you open a bag of chips, I eat the entire bag of chips. That's how it goes. Okay, so that's fair. This study is nonsense for me. Well. But I can understand that there might be people. You are too. truly the personification of a badger, I think. So. <laughs> don't die please don't die you're not allowed yeah. that's illegal in germany it is
kaiju slapper. Ultraman. Gotta slap them all. Gotta slap them all. <laughs>